Welcome to this week's podcast for the Bridge ATM community, and I'm delighted to be with Professor Lars Ingebrigtsen, who's well known for his leadership role within the International Olympic Committee. He's also the editor for the IOCs for annual issues in the BJSM, and they're the ones branded with the Olympic rings, and they're focused on sports injury prevention and care of athletes. Welcome to the podcast, Lars. Thank you. Lars, knee injuries, you know what happened in the old days. If you briefly recap that and really educate us on what is happening today and how clinicians can manage ACL injuries better. Uh, I think it's hard for the people listening in on this one to understand that we actually did treat them totally differently uh, previously. So when I was a resident in 1980s, um, I saw a lot of knee injuries because of uh, I work in Trondheim in Norway. There are a lot of skiing injuries over Easter, for example. And uh, we would operate on them right away uh, if they had an ACL injury. Didn't have an MRI, so it was all clinical exams and x-rays. Then we operated on them uh, open without the scope. And then we put them in a cast, uh, usually for six weeks. Uh, and uh, when they got out of the cast, they were stiff. So, you know, it's just completely different from what we do today. Uh, I do um, uh, alpine skier comes in, uh, ACL injury, if it's isolated, if there are no um, cartilage or major meniscal work, we usually don't operate until they have full range of motion and no swelling. So they, I send them to prehab instead, meaning they have to work on it, become stronger, make sure their range of motion is totally perfect before we actually operate, which is usually uh, six to eight weeks after the injury. And for the practical aspects, you know the physios very well. You're a surgeon, but you work very closely with physios. Tell me how many times a week the patients would go and what some of the exercises are that the physios would prescribe. Uh, you know, it depends. I work with elite athletes at the Olympic Center in Norway, and obviously they have access to physios, so they go every day. Uh, I just had a story. I had a guy call me. Uh, he had an ACL injury, and he had just listened to a TV uh, uh, on Kjetil uh, Jansru is a Norwegian top-level athlete with many gold medals uh, in alpine skiing and he had an ACL injury and he came back and won another gold medal one year after. So he called me and said, I'd like to have the same uh, rehab and the same surgery as uh, uh, him because I want to get back the same way and be uh, successful. So I told him, all you have to do is quit your job and train three, three hours a day, every day, for um, about 360 days, then you might have a chance. So uh, elite athletes are different. For the regular people, uh, regular weekend warriors, you could say, usually the first week they only see the physio once just to make sure their range of motion is okay. They don't have much extension lag, for example. But then after they get onto it, their training, after about two weeks, they usually see the physio two or three days a week. Uh, and then after about uh, eight weeks, they will see him in Norway anyway, once every two months or something like that. And what are some of the key things that uh, the physios teach the patients to do on their own? I think in the beginning, they teach them how to keep their range of motion up because it tends to stiffen up a little bit if they are not um, keen on uh, making sure that they can extend the knee all the way out. Uh, they teach them how to... Uh, how to uh, um, to walk without a limp, uh, to make sure their pelvic, pelvis, uh, pelvic uh, uh, muscles are strong, uh, and that they can actually they only that and that they don't only concentrate on hamstrings and quads. 
course, th those are the most important part of the, of the uh, rehab, but you have to look at the whole body. And the physios at the Olympic Center, they're, they're really uh, using their skills on the whole body because they're sending a patient back to a challenging sport. So I think the main difference now is that we are doing much more functional physiotherapy than we did before. And tell us some of those functional activities you see people do in the gym because I know you're in that gym. Yeah, uh, you can. It's incredible what they what they do actually. Um, uh, so let's say after uh, three four weeks, you they they in the beginning they're just walking stairs, but then they start to use the uh, uh, bath boards, the trampoline, uh, the gym, uh, and uh, there's a lot of uh, exercises that we or uh, that we probably can't do. Uh, that they are taught how to do by the by the physios, and some of them actually come out after their uh, physio rehab. Let's say four months after the ACL, they're much better. They're much better shape than I was before the um, injury, because they really have to train every day. They don't have to see the physio every day, uh, but they have to train both strength, uh, proprioception, uh, and function. Function meaning jumping, landing, uh, being able to uh, do a fake uh, land after a high jump when they're team handball players, for example. So you have to be uh, look at the sport itself and then and then sort of m make the program uh, that is really fitted to that specific sport. Moving on to um, the locked knee for a minute, because we're going to talk about the nice randomized trial that you were involved in where it was exercise versus arthroscopic surgery. And one of the issues in this field has been that there's still a case for arthroscopy in a locked knee, but the definition of locked knee is tricky in a lot of people's minds. So how do you decide you know, if something's locked with a view to that being an indication for surgery versus something where a person could go for physio with a knee that doesn't have perfect range of motion? Yeah, of course that's difficult. But what I mean by that is that the patient is, uh, this is an acute patient knee, and uh, he or she doesn't want to extend the knee all the way out. And it's swollen. And, you know, more than 80% of the time, probably, it's going to be caused by pain and uh, a lot of pressure in the joint with the blood and stuff. And sometimes, 20% or something, is going to be caused by some sort of locking uh, structurally, meaning a meniscal tear or uh, a cartilage injury. And the, what you're asking me is how do I differentiate between the two? And it's very difficult to do that clinically. You don't, if you have a structural lock, you can kind of feel it when you actually try to manipulate a little bit. Uh, and um, of course you can be helped by the MRI if you really, because I actually do that now uh, probably most of the time. If I have a patient like that, I'm not totally sure. I will do an MR because the MR will pick up a, a um, buccal tear and meniscus, or actually a part of a, um, a, a cartilage that's gone off the femoral condyle. But actually, it's a very good question. I just had a mom uh, email me yesterday from Lillehammer, and her son uh, was only 17 or 16, and she had read about me in a, in a newspaper, and I had said, you know, uh, you don't need to do surgery for. Uh, uh, for meniscus injuries. And of course, I never said that. What I really, because it's very important that in youngsters that has a locked knee, which this guy had, 
it's usually caused by a bucket handle meniscal tear. And you can actually repair that now so that the repair is uh, perfect uh, in 90% of the time. It's going to heal up if you do it within the first two weeks. So there is a place for arthroscopic surgery and fixation of those injuries. What you are alluding to are the people over 50 that has, uh, or 60 maybe, has um, have um, uh, degenerative tear of the medial meniscus as a in conjunction with their OA in the knee. And um, even then, once in a while, they get a locking knee. But actually, you can get them on a, on a um, bicycle, either a road bike or in the gym. And if they work on that a little bit, after a few days, it will lock and they'll be fine. I don't think you need to do surgery for those kind of patients because you're not going to repair the meniscus. You're going to take the meniscus out if you are going to do something surgically. So therefore, uh, there is less and less room, in my opinion, for surgery for patients over, over 60 at least. Lars, let's talk about the pediatric ACL. Tell us what the situation is these days before you go into detail on how do you think they should be managed. Yeah, the issue is uh, we're talking about kids. Uh, I define that as 12 years or younger, for example, I have an ACL injury. They're usually very loose. And uh, the question here is, should you do surgery to them, which most Americans want to do, uh, or should you do them conservatively or really rehabbing them very well, as we do? And the first qu question, the big question mark here is that if you do surgery to them, you have to go through the, uh, or not always, but most of the time through the growth plates. And that may change the growth plates a little bit, so you may get malalignment or you may get I go grow spurt earlier than it should be and so forth. So there are issues there. And I think an issue that people hasn't, haven't really taught, thought about is that when you put a graft into the knee in that young kid, the graft's going to have to grow. What happens is the graft grows in length. But if you look at the MRI and you measure it, it doesn't grow in width. So when the patient is 18, uh, he or she has an ACL, but it doesn't look normal at all. It only probably is only half what it should be or even less than that. So there are many issues that we really don't know exactly. So that's why I feel that if we can get by with a good rehab, uh, uh, I think that's a good argument for a, for a good rehab instead of a surgery. However, I do agree with some clinicians who says that if you don't do their ACL, they're so loose that they will have to change their behavior. And you know, when you're a kid, you like to do almost anything. And uh, uh, I agree with that, it's a problem. So what we do is we give them a brace. They use the brace in uh, school when they're active, when they do downhill skiing, when they do handball, or when they do football, stuff like that. And you know, we have 50 patients that we have followed now for uh, since they were 12, till now they're at 18 or 20. And uh, two-thirds of those have gone fine. They're not, uh, they don't have surgery until the, when they're 18 or 19. Whereas one-third, in the meantime, between 12 and 18, were so loose. They had uh, several episodes of um, uh, subluxations of the knee. And then we decided we, we'll do surgery to save the meniscus, basically. Uh, but I think that the last word in this uh, case is not said because there are like, 40 different surgical procedures, which means that uh, there are no perfect surgical procedure yet. 
and uh, there's a lot of work to do on the surgical side before we actually have a solution there. And in brief, um, are there two main surgical approaches? Yeah, you can say that in the young, youngest ones, so eight, nine year old, you're gonna do try to do it outside the growth plate. In the 12 years or 12, 13, 14 years old, you dwell through the growth plate. The problem in going outside the growth plate, which Min Cocker has uh, really uh, taught us, is that um, uh, you don't really insert a normal ACL, not normal insertion points, not normal anatomy, and I question the function of that ACL down the road. Uh, so there, are, there is a lot of discussion about those issues, but basically that's the difference between the two. Now there's been some good PhDs on this. There is evidence about these things that you're explaining for us and summarizing for us, Lars. Yeah, you know, Håvard Moxnes uh, from our group has done his PhD on these uh, 50 patients. Uh, I follow them very, very closely. And uh, the American says that if you don't operate on them, they're gonna have cartilage and meniscal injuries and so forth. As a matter of fact, in those 50, only one patient had a uh, uh, meniscal injury between he was 12 and 14, 15. And the patients were all active. Uh, very few of them changed their lifestyle. Some quit playing soccer and did something else instead. Uh, but it seems like the way we have treated these patients are okay for at least two thirds of them. The problem we have, which I agree on, is that it's hard to pick out the ones that are that will need surgery and the ones we can actually work with uh, as far as rehab is concerned as an alternative to surgery. For our listeners, I think if you shared the IOC courses for doctors, physios and dietitians um, briefly, because people from many countries could access them online, I think it's a terrific resource. So can you just summarize that for me, please? Yeah, you know, I used to travel around the world giving courses for a handful of people and it was very inefficient. So when I was in London, I saw 900 physicians with a very different level of knowledge in medicine. And I decided uh, together then with John Mon to, uh, uh, to develop this uh, course for MDs, which we've done now for three years and for physios, which started last year, first year now. Uh, and it's a web-based course, uh, two years with assignments and exams, pretty tough course. You can find information about it in the, um, the IOC website under Medical Commission. The lectures are the best in the world and they are from a lot of countries. And none of them actually said no when we asked them to uh, do this for us. And they have designed special lectures for you. Um, and I think personally that this is a very worthwhile thing to do if you have some experience as a physician or as a PT. And we were talking, you said you had specific ex illustrations at the Olympic Games now of people who've really made progress? Yeah, it's fun. Uh, this game in uh, Rio, 25 of former graduates from uh, our course were, were there as uh, volunteer doctors. And we had a one day meeting with every one of them. And uh, several of them told me that uh, it changed their life. Because they, partly because of the knowledge, I think, that they learned, of course, but also because of the fact that they now have a diploma on the wall saying to people that they were now educated through the IOC program. And the basic idea of that program is it is four team physicians working with high level athletes. And uh, it had really changed uh, 
the access for some of them to the National Olympic Committee, to patients and to colleagues. Uh, so it's been very worthwhile. Fantastic, Lars. Thanks so much. We'll leave it there for today. Thanks a lot for doing the podcast. Thank you. You can find out more about the IOC's educational programs by just Googling IOC Sports Medicine Diploma or IOC Sports Physio Diploma. Hope you've had a chance to have an active day and please do share the word about the podcast if you find it useful.